Matthew chapter 9, verse 14 through 17, four verses, which would seem to be a very short message. However, no, not this morning. So, um, and there's some detail that we're going to go into. So if it's your very first time, if you're wondering, what are we doing and why have you picked this passage? Because we are teaching through the gospel of Matthew, from Matthew 1, verse 1, all the way to the last verse. And so it's been over a year that we've been in the gospel of Matthew and we are now at the ninth chapter. But I think it's important because as we read this, there's a story and there's a point that Matthew is trying to get across. You know, last week, if you weren't here, here's what happened last week. Last week, this traitorous man, this treacherous betrayer who betrayed his own people and was allied with the enemy of his people ended up having a personal meeting with Jesus. Jesus came to this, this wicked man's place of work. And this man who was not loved by anybody, but who was very rich because he made the money off the backs of the people around him, he was none other than Matthew, the writer of this gospel. Jesus met him at his place of work, a tax collector's booth. And Jesus changed his life. You know, I wanted you to have a different look on the gospel of Matthew, which is consider Matthew as a gospel written by a prodigal. We made the assumption last Sunday that he already knew about the Lord because he quotes the Old Testament more than any other gospel writer combined. So he, how does he know all about the Old Testament? I believe he was raised knowing about who God is. And so this prodigal son who was following the way of the world, and he did get rich, and he was miserable. Jesus met him in his miserable state and said two words to him, follow me, and then started walking. And Matthew left everything and followed him. So if you have a prodigal in your life, don't ever lose hope because God hasn't lost hope and God has ways to reach prodigals. How? He meets them personally in a way that they understand. For those of you, I just want to share this. If you have a prodigal in your life and maybe you're like, I just, I don't know. Remember this verse. Jesus said this himself, Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Submission. Don't you lose hope. Jesus is not lost hope and Jesus is still on mission. So as we're starting out this morning, you probably looked at your bulletin, you saw the title, the, the message, out, you know, out with the old, in with the new kind of a thing. And, and I noticed this about decades. Decades kind of have their own personality, right? Got the roaring 20s, depression happens in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, keep going to where we find ourselves now. I want to ask you a question and we'll become a Pentecostal church for just a few moments here. So here it is. I'm going to ask you a question and all of you will give me the answer at the same time, right? So here's the question. Just listen to it first. What's the best decade you've ever lived in? Okay, think about it. You know, you're going to say something like the 50s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. That's kind of be what your answer is, right? What's the best decade you have ever lived in? And we'll do it on three. Ready? One, two, three. All right, got it. Great. Okay, good. That illustrates the point. What's the point? The point is, what's your favorite decade? My favorite decade is the blah, 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 right? Okay, so that means that there's no single decade that is the same one for all of us. I do like to ask people like what your favorite decade is, or sometimes people just volunteer that information. Interesting though, I have never heard anyone tell me, man, the 30s were incredible. You know, when the depression happened, like the 30s were awesome. And, uh, you know, maybe somebody did have a, a great experience during the 30s, although by this point in their life, you know, they're, well, they've lived quite a few years at this point in their life. But the idea that I would love to hear somebody who, who thought that was the greatest um, 
uh, decade that they've ever lived in. Um, for some, even this last week, I heard somebody tell me the 50s, Jim, the 50s in America was amazing. I just love the 50s in America. I actually had that conversation yesterday. And, uh, you know, it's like, why, would, why were the 50s the greatest? And I got to hear this person describe why that decade was the greatest decade they ever lived through. I asked my wife this question and she said, the greatest decade? Well, if I could pick, it'd be the 40s. Now, my wife is not that old, okay? And I'm just like, no, you can't pick the 40s. If my wife could live in any decade, she would want to live in the 40s. And so, um, so I said, no, a decade that you've lived in. And she said, well, the 80s. And that, for me, that's the same thing as well. Some of it has to do, and I was thinking about this, the longer you've lived on the earth, it seems that you have more... Um, experience watching a decline in our society and in our world, okay? So I, th- I think then we tend to refer back to an earlier point in our experience on this earth. Be- because, and I think there's a couple aspects to that. One, because we had, didn't have enough data yet to realize, wow, there's a, there's a trend and the trend line is going down. <laughs> uh, but not only that, I think as, as we're youthful, we have a way to look at the world in a way that's maybe a little bit uh, less pragmatic than as we get older. Okay, so I think you, you combine all those things together and that's how we end up with all these different decades. And of course, we were born at different times too. So sometimes that's a matter of taste or a matter of preference, you know, what you say your, your best decade ever was. And that's fine. You know, everybody can have their opinion on that. But, and sometimes, you know, it's this idea of like the older way of doing things was better than the new way of doing things. And I will hear that. And, and, you know, my major is computer science. So aviation, computer science. I'm not afraid of computers or technology from the time that I was nine, you know, like 35 something years ago or whatever that was, right? It's, it's just, it's been a part of my life. Even when it was a fad, you know, back in the late eighties, uh, I was, I was drawn to it. I was like, this thing's going to be amazing. And so got a degree in that and all of that. And so for me, I see what, how that tool can be used in a wrong way and how it's not the tool, just like a hammer is neutral. Uh, computer and technology is neutral. The issue is sinful people. That's the issue, yeah. right? Okay, so, so for me, I, I try not to focus on the tools. I try to focus on what the heart of the issue is, but... All that to say, I do understand when people go, some of the old, older ways of doing things were better. And I love hearing why a person would say that. And you know what? Many times I would agree with them. I would definitely agree with them. And I know that as I get older, I'm going to get to that point where I'm like, man, the way we did things in the 80s, let me tell you, back in my day, you know, but it's going to happen. It's going to happen, right? Come on. Like we know it's going to happen. But this is what we're going to see today in today's message. There are some things that are objectively better now than they were in the past. Wait, wait, Jim, that objectively or subjectively? Objectively. Well, how could you say that? I'm going to say that because Jesus is actually going to say that. Jesus is going to say that there's some things that have come that are new, that are better than what were old, and they are not compatible, the old and the new. You're going to have to decide. So we're going to start with that thought. The title of this morning's message is Out with the Old, In with the New. Let's pray. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 9, verse 14. Papa, as we come before you, we thank you that you've drawn us here today. We thank you that your word is alive. It's living, it's active, and it's going to divide. It's definitely going to divide. It's going to make a, there's going to be a delineation today between what is old and what is new. And we are given a choice as to what we will follow. You will never force us, but you will inform us and give us the choice. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be speaking to me, speaking to us, 
so that we might choose wisely for this life and most importantly, the life that's going to come and last forever. Father, I pray that uh, your spirit as we sang is here. Holy Spirit, bring a spirit of peace and calm. And I pray of attentiveness, even as the subject matter may be a little thick, I pray that we would be alert to hear the truth in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Matthew 9, verse 14. All right, let's jump right in here. Then the disciples of John came to him, that's Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? That's an odd transition from Matthew giving his testimony. Now we're talking about fasting. What's going on here? Well, these disciples of John, we have to establish something very quickly. Are these like followers of John, Jesus's, Jesus's disciple? That's kind of weird. Like, it's like, it's like a, what, like a pyramid scheme? Like, John's following Jesus, but these people are following John? No, this John is John the baptizer. This is John who was out in the wilderness, who was, say, who was making a way for the Lord. And when Jesus showed up, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's the John the Baptist. That's the John that we're talking about here. And remember, John the Baptist was instructing people when Jesus came, Don't follow me. I'm not even worthy to untie the sandal strap of that man right there. And so John was directing his followers, the ones who were following after what the truth that he was speaking. John says, Don't follow me anymore. Follow Jesus. Well, here's the thing. Everybody gets a choice, right? Some of John's followers chose to still follow John the baptizer rather than go follow Jesus. And so they were kind of following this methodology of doing things. And these are the disciples that are coming up to Jesus. And they're asking a valid question. Here's the valid question. Lots of valid questions in today's message. First valid question. Why is it that we fast? And even like Pharisees who were like the spiritual pinnacle in their society, at least that's the way they were looked at, How come we fast, the Pharisees fast, but Jesus, your followers aren't fasting? How come they're not doing what the law says? How come they're not doing what the scriptures say? And Jesus is going to answer them. He could have answered it very quickly and this could be a very short message, but Jesus decides to expand upon it. And so we will too as well. Jesus is going to say that there are changes that can happen and Jesus is more concerned about the inside. Jesus is first and foremost concerned about the change of heart. He's not interested in changing the, pa- the coating of paint on the outside of a person. He's not interested in the window dressing. If the outside changes, then the outside changes in time because the inside has changed first. We don't want to get caught with trying to just mask things by changing the outside without letting God do the work on the inside in our lives. So Jesus is going to address their question, but he's going to go even further. Now, let's talk about fasting for just a moment. The fasting that would happen there, they would fast often, fast weekly. Some would even fast more than that. And so there's a question here. Wait, what does the Bible actually say about fasting? Well, if you look on the screen, Old Testament, we're going to be in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus 16, starting at verse 29. This instructs the Jews how they should and when they should fast. So let's go to the source material and actually find out what what the command is on fasting. This is a standard practice for you, a perpetual ordinance. In other words, it's ongoing. On the 10th day of the seventh month, which happens to be like in late September, so we just kind of passed this historical time here, both the citizen and the foreigner living with you in the land are to enter into a solemn fast and refrain from all work because on this day, uh, atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. And then there's a couple other uh, things there. In the presence of God, you'll be made clean of all your sins. This is a Sabbath of all Sabbaths. You must fast. 
it is a perpetual ordinance. Like there's some repeated things in there. So this is important, okay? So here's where the Jews got it correct. This is important. Fasting is instructed by God. Correct. But here's the thing. As you read this verse, we went to the source, right? Where does it say how often it should happen? And if you read this, you understand, wait, God commanded them to fast once a year. Once a year. Hold on. How did we go from once a year to every week of the year? You know how we did it? People, that's how it happened. God says something and then people go, hmm, if it makes God happy, we'll just use that word for now, happy to, for if I follow what he tells me to do, then it must make him 52 times happier if I do it every single week. That's it. And you know what? I'm going to tell everybody that's what they should do too. Because if they really want to make God happy, they should do it more than what he said. I mean, forget what he said. Let's just, let's just do it because we're going to manipulate God with our good works. Do not ever underestimate a person's ability to take God's word and then misconstrue it. But then if somebody goes 52 times a year is, you know, 52 times better. You know what some people said? You know what happened? Let's do it twice a week. I'm doing it 104 times a year. I'm twice as holy as you are. And that's why when you see in the Bible anybody that says, well, I fast twice a week. They decided to take this and suddenly make their spiritual outward appearance, the paint on the outside of the house. They tried to make it nice and shiny. Meanwhile, while there's rotting and decay happening within the house. And Jesus is going to take issue because Jesus has x-ray vision to see past the exterior. He actually looks at the heart and he's not confused at all when he looks at a person's heart, mine included. So the children of Israel are told to humble themselves and abstain from food so they can focus on the Lord and instead they decide to make a religious tradition with it. Again, human beings have ways of making religious tradition that God never said to do. Go back to the source material and if it's not in there, hmm, I wonder where it came from. Well, boy, those Jews, man, talk about them always like building up a system of religion. Hold on. You and I both know we can do that today in our day and age too. We can build human tradition that has no biblical clarity. And then you get people at church that have been coming to church for generation after generation. It's like, hey, we do this thing. I mean, for some people, hey, you know, Atelios, they have communion. It seems like every three weeks or so. And I don't know. I mean, it's, I mean, it's good because, you know, you know, it's getting to the end of the service. Pastor's going a little bit long and I could use a little snack. And so you have a little bit of bread and a little bit of grape juice and... And I feel good. And it's just one of those things where it's like, you don't understand what you're doing. I would encourage you. This is so important. If you call yourself a Christian, you should know why you're doing what you're doing. Because the, wo- the world, the non-believing world will call you on it and call you a fake, which they rightfully should do if you are doing stuff that you don't even understand. Why in the world would you do something you don't know? Well, because it's what everybody... Oh, no. Wrong answer. Eh, wrong answer homework assignment for you. If there's something about Christianity that you do often and you don't know why you're doing it, your homework is to figure out why you're doing it. More importantly, figure out where in the Bible it says you're supposed to do it. Okay? Because Jesus here is going to have a teaching moment. Hey, your, your disciples, they're not fasting. We're fasting. The Pharisees are fasting. How come they're not supposed to fast? 
And so Jesus then, I love Jesus answers questions and he doesn't ask, answer questions exactly the way that a person asked it to him. He goes even deeper. And so look at verse 15 of Matthew chapter nine. In response to how come your disciples don't fast, Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Uh, what? Keep going. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. Okay, so here's how it worked in, in Jesus's time. When uh, a man and a woman were to be married, this is the way it worked. They would get betrothed. Oh, betrothal, right, got it. So it's like an engagement. No, mm-mm, nope, they are legally married. Legally married. Wait, have they consummated physically the relationship? No, 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 that comes afterwards. No, no, the way it works there is the first one is commitment. That's the first thing that happens. There's a written agreement that's made. It's the betrothal. And it's like, well, well, they haven't physically consummated the marriage. They're not living under the same roof. So they're not really married. Oh no, they are married. And so then, well, okay, so it doesn't sound really romantic so far, but okay, so how did it work then? Betrothal, contract, contract written, contract agreed to. Great, we are betrothed, married. The first thing the husband does, honey, I'll be leaving now, bye. And that's what he does, he leaves. What? Where does he go? He goes back to his parents' home. Why? He goes to his parents' home so he can start his construction project. What? Yes. He starts to build an addition to his parents' home, the home he grew up in. Why? It's the place that him and his wife, his betrothed, are going to live. And so then after a period of time, say six months to a year, what? Yes, they're married. He leaves. He starts a construction project to come back at an undetermined term in time. You know, you know how delays happen on a construction project. And so then, and so then he comes back and everybody is always waiting for the bridegroom to come back. Why? Because when that happens, then there's, here's the order. Commitment. Contract. Commitment. Celebration. Consummation. That's the order. Think about the way our world operates. Do you see how backwards it completely is? Consummation of what? No commitment. <laughs> Celebration? Well, kind of put the cart before the horse. And so, and it's just, if we look biblically at how it was, it makes more sense when we hear Jesus mention some things. So what did Jesus say as far as this fasting and not fasting? Jesus said, do wedding guests mourn and do they fast when the bridegroom is around? No, we've been waiting for the bridegroom to come. When the bridegroom shows up, it's like whatever we were doing, hey, we're taking a break from that because now the bridegroom is here. There's a wedding that's going to happen. You know what Jesus was saying? Jesus is saying, I am the groom. I have come here. And because I am here walking on the earth as we speak right now to these followers of John the baptizer, he goes, my disciples, my followers don't need to, they don't need to fast right now. And then, you know, what's awesome is in verse 15, he says it very clearly. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. You know what Jesus is foretelling? He's telling about his death, his resurrection, and when he will ascend to heaven. So all of that is being said here. And Jesus is the bridegroom. So there's an appropriate time to celebrate. I mean, at a wedding, that's not the moment where it's like, you know, went to a wonderful 50th wedding renewal just two days ago, right? wonderful food, great time. Sorry, sorry, I'm fasting. Sorry, I just, uh, sorry, my face is like, no, wrong timing, bad timing, bad timing. This is not, you could start this the day after. Don't do this now. Why? Because the groom is here. A wedding's going to happen. 
This is a time to celebrate. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, I'm here. This is not the time to mourn. There'll come a time when I won't be here and they will fast. Okay. So if you're wondering though, if, if you're going, well, okay, can, you, can we talk a little bit more about fasting? Like here's some questions. Is fasting wrong? No. How do we know that? Jesus did it. <laughs> okay, so fasting isn't wrong. If you want to know more information about fasting, we did a whole message when we were in Matthew chapter six. I think we have a screen for this one here. And the message was called Fast with the Right Heart. And so it was in April. You can go online. You can listen to it. But we talked all about fasting. And fasting has very little to do with the food. It has to do with the heart. Okay. So we don't want to get focused on the external things here. All right. So Jesus at that point could have just ended it. He could have just said, hey, the bridegroom's here. That's why they're not fasting. Thank you for coming and ended the conversation. But Jesus never turns down a good opportunity to have a conversation. So now that the door is open, Jesus is going to take it one more step further and Jesus is going to say, hey, you followers of John the Baptizer, let me tell you something. There are two ways that you can be right with God. Now, I know what I just said and I know some of you are like, you heretic. Wait, okay? Let's hear me out. Hear me out. And if, and if I'm still a heretic, you can stone me then. But hold your stones for just a moment, okay? So let me say this again clearly because it is a bit of a shocking statement. There are two ways to be right with God. What? Wait for it, okay? There's an old way and there's a new way. The two ways are not compatible. Can't do both. Got to pick one or the other. Jesus is going to give two examples of an old way and a new way. Let's look at them. Next verse, verse 16 in your Bible. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Oh, okay, Jesus the tailor. That's random. Now he's going, telling us how to patch clothing? What is Jesus talking about here? Let me show you a picture from my childhood. When I see this picture, it takes me back to the 80s. Some of you know what those are. Those are awesome. Those are denim patches for jeans for a young boy who keeps, or a young girl who keep, although I could only speak of one side of that, but yes, um, who, who tears their jeans and whose mother has those. I still remember the packaging they were in. I remember going to the store and going, oh, and they had different ones too, like they had designs on some of them. But, but typically I remember the denim, dark denim ones there. And my mom would, uh, I think she would iron them on and then she would sew them or I forget how that all worked. But I was just like, I got some patches, you know, and it's just like, it was like a cool thing that patches on your jeans. I'm like, I got patches. And, uh, and I just remember that. But there's an interesting thing about the material because most of us, let's just be honest here. I don't think a bunch of us here are like, oh yeah, I just did that yesterday. Just patching my jeans because I do that. Like, I think it's a different time period. But when Jesus mentioned this illustration, people understood what he meant. So let's look at a, a modern version of this. If we look at a pair of jeans here with a patch put on it, right? Kind of sewn in, there it is. But the jeans that are well-worn and have been washed and dried and shrunk and all that stuff, they are now shrunk to their size that they're not going to shrink a whole lot more. If the patch is new and hasn't been pre-shrunk, then that patch gets sewn onto a piece of clothing. The problem is through use and washings, the patch, the new, will shrink. And when the new shrinks, the old has already been shrunk. What happens? It tears away and peels away and then it makes the tear even worse that's under. Now you've got a bigger problem. The two are incompatible. You can't have new with old. Okay, so Jesus is just trying to make a point here. Incompatibility between these two things. Okay, well, it can't mix the old way and the new way. Let's look at the next verse, verse 17. Here's another illustration. 
Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, so both are preserved. Okay, <laughs> so now Jesus is like a vintner. So he's great. He's a tailor. He's, a, he's talking about wine. Like he knows a whole bunch. He's like a Renaissance man. How wonderful. What does he mean? The people at, the, at that time, if they missed the tailoring illustration, they would have understand this wine illustration and wineskin illustration. Now, there's, I'm gonna, in a second, we're going to show a picture of some wineskins. I'm going to say this right off the bat. The picture you're about to see is not the picture of a skinned animal um, hanging. Um, and I know that sounds like really weird, but when you see it, you'll see. So here it is. Okay, so this, I looked at this and I was just like, are those little feet? And is that where the head used to be? And is that the tail? No, it's not. That's, that's leather. And th- those are skins that are put together. In fact, those things that I thought were legs, when I first kind of looked, I was like, what am I looking at? Like a skinned animal? No. It's a wine skin and that's a loop and a rope would be put through it to the next loop and then that would get slung over their shoulder. And then here's a, an illustration of what they would have looked like, wine skins, during the time of Jesus. Okay, the reason why we're looking at this is this is what the people would have easily known. It's like they wouldn't even have had any issue as Jesus is talking. They would have gotten exactly what he was saying. But here's what happens. These wineskins made out of leather, they start out being supple, pliable, flexible. Very important because you put new wine into a new wineskin, the gases, the, uh, carbon dioxide begins to get released in the fermentation process. As it's being released, the wineskin begins to swell. As the wineskin is flexible or, um, yeah, and it, and it can expand, it can handle the wine fermenting. Great. It's funny, I looked at that. It's like the old school wine in the box. Like, there you go, right there, wineskin. So, um, so then anyway, uh, I had to get the thought out. Now I can think. Okay, so then um, if, if you put new wine into an old wineskin, in other words, wineskin that had wine in it already and it's been stored in there for a while, it already gone through the fermentation process and some time had gone by, the wine, the, you know, the rope on the end had been untied and the wine had been poured out, great. Great, the wine is done. Oh, look, there's an old wineskin. Let's just use that, stick this new wine in there. There's a problem because now the wineskin is already stretched and it's now dry, it's, it's brittle. It's not as flexible as a new wineskin. So then if you put new wine into an old wineskin, again, fermentation, carbon dioxide, expands and it rips the wineskin. So what gets ruined? Two things get ruined, the wine and the wineskin. Jesus is making that illustration and he's saying you can't put the new with the old. You can't put the new with the... Jesus is making a big point about there's a separation here. And I think right about this point is where we're sitting here going, okay, so can somebody please tell me what the old is and what the new is? I get it. They're not compatible, but I don't know what we're talking about. Fair enough. Let me summarize the four verses that we just read. Disciples of John the Baptizer come up and they ask Jesus, in essence, hey, is there another way to be right with God? Jesus says, hey, this is a time of rejoicing since the groom is here. When the groom is gone, they will long for him. Jesus then says, when he starts talking about the patches, you can't mix the old way with the new way. And then when he talks about the wine, Jesus is saying, the new wine is the gospel of grace and it cannot be mixed with the old skin of legalism. That's what Jesus is talking about. You can't have the gospel of grace. You can't have the gospel that Jesus represents and brings and live in legalism. They are incompatible. One is the old way and one is the new way. You know, um, this idea of sin, 
this idea of, well, how am I going to be right with God? Well, the Old Testament way, you know, you look at the Bible and you see the division between Old and New Testament. And, and we can all admit, if you've read a little bit of the Old and the New, there's like a different mode of operation in the Old Testament as there is in the New Testament. Yes, it has to do with an old way and a new way. The old way to be right with God, you would follow his commandments and you would obey him. Your obedience would show your love to him. That was the old way. The new way is believing upon the work of Jesus Christ and receiving his grace. And that's what makes a person right before God. Amen. Okay? So as we look at those two ways, that uh, th- those two different methods, Jesus is saying that they are incompatible. Now remember, I said there's two ways to, to be right with God. Let me, let me share this story and then I'll tell you the two ways you can be right with God. The story is of Frederick the Great. He was the uh, second king of Prussia. Prussia doesn't exist anymore. It's now the area of Poland and Russia. But back then it was called Prussia. He was the second king. He was called Frederick the Great. He decided to go visit a prison in Berlin. He goes to Berlin and he wants to visit with the prisoners. So the king goes into the prison. He's in the prison and you know what he hears? Your majesty, I'm, I'm innocent. King, I'm innocent. I'm innocent. I was wrongly, I'm not, I'm not supposed to be here. And he hears that. That's the overwhelming thing he hears. But then the king, King Frederick, looks and he sees somebody sitting in the corner who's not saying anything and who's actually like separated himself from everybody else. He's not interested in pleading his case, right? So then the king kind of quiets everyone down and looks back and goes, man, you, yes, you over there. Why are you here? Armed robbery, your majesty. Are you guilty? Most certainly, my king. I am justly receiving what I deserve for my crime. King Frederick starts, he has a cane and he hits it on the floor and gets the warden. The warden comes and he says to the warden, Warden, release this guilty man immediately, lest he corrupt all these sweet, innocent men. And he was released. And you know, it's a very easy story to understand, but this is the truth of the story. That's exactly what it's like with King Jesus. You see, you can never be free from the prison of sin if you don't admit that you're guilty. As long as you are like the majority of the world at the cages going, I'm fine, I'm like 80% good, you're 20% dead, which equals dead. You're dead. I'm fine, I'm okay, I'm a pretty good guy, I donated a lot to the church. I taught a lot of good messages for you. Yeah, but do you need me? Are you a sinner? No, no, I'm not that bad. Then guess what? You're not, you're not admitting the truth that God knows, but here's it even deeper. You yourself know. So who can receive the freedom that comes through Christ? The person who goes, King Jesus, I'm guilty. I know I'm guilty. You know I'm guilty. And I'm getting what I deserve. And Jesus says, do you want to substitute? I'll substitute myself for you. And if you humble yourself and say yes, then a substitution happens. It's an unfair exchange. Jesus takes death and sin and you take freedom and forgiveness. It's an unfair exchange. But the king of all kings makes that offer to everyone in this world. The sad, the sad thing, majority of the people of the world stand at the gate and go, I'm not a bad person. See, it starts with truth. You can't have a right relationship with God unless you deal in truth. Okay, since we're talking about truth, let's talk about Pastor Jim and his crazy two ways that he says you can be right with God, okay? One way you can be right with God is you're perfect. 
from the time you're born to the time you die. In your actions, in your thoughts, in your heart. You never think ill of anybody because Jesus says that that's murdering someone. You never have a lustful look at anyone because Jesus says that's committing adultery. So that means in your entire... um, There's two ways. There actually are two ways to be right with God. One, you're perfect. And if you're perfect, then wow, you're perfect like God's perfect. You're going to have no problem being in his presence. But now let's come back to reality in the world that we all live in. No one fits in that category. And the sad thing is people operate as if they are that. And one day they're going to have a meeting with King Jesus and they're going to know that they didn't. So that's why there's two options. Let's put the unrealistic and nobody's going to get to that option away. All right, now we're back to the one option that's left. What's the other option? A perfect person decides to give their life in substitution for you. The guilty one. That's Jesus. That's grace. That's the new way. Jesus came to be the substitute for people. And so, as we're looking at all of this then, maybe you're sitting here going, okay, now I'm really confused because why in the world then for the majority of the Bible here do we have the Old Testament and this being under the, this, you know, following the law makes you right before God, right? Why did God even give the law to his people in the first place? Wasn't it because by following the law, they could be right with God, like by doing it perfectly? Check this out. Romans 3.20. Look at this verse here. It says, for no one can ever, no one ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. Wow. The law, here's the purpose of the law. For those that were wondering in your heart, why is the law here? It simply shows us how sinful we are. That's why it's there. That's why we were given the law. The law, if you want to think of it this way, the law is like a medical diagnostic machine. What do you mean? X-ray, MRI, something like that, right? What does it do? It diagnoses a condition. Okay, so I'm diagnosed. I have, you know, uh, maybe it's a stethoscope and it's like, okay, wait, you have, you know, fluid in your lungs. Okay, diagnosed. Oh, you know, an x-ray, you have a broken bone. Diagnosed. MRI, you know, whatever. Whatever the issue is, it diagnoses. But I think you and I know enough that no stethoscope, MRI, or x-ray device is going to heal you of something you've been diagnosed of. Oh, I've got a broken bone? Awesome. Stick me back in the x-ray. It's going to heal me. No, that's not what it's for. It's not to heal you, it's to diagnose. That's what the Old Testament is for. Why is the Old Testament there? Because there are people who believe, I'm a good enough person. Really? Okay, cool, let's use God's standard. Now let's look at you in front of God's perfect standard. How do you, use, how do you, how do you stack up? Remember, if you fail at one point, you fail at all of it. How many times do you have to lie to be a liar? Once. How many times do you have to steal to be a thief? Once. Oh, wait, if that's the standard, then I'm a pretty horrible person. Yes, you are. Welcome to Telios. We're really glad to have you because <laughs> we only accept horrible people. So we're all glad you're here. I'm glad they let me come too. So, so while we deal with truth, then we have a problem. Okay, I've now been diagnosed with a critical issue that has issues in my life. Yes, but even greater, it has eternal issues. Okay, okay, enough diagnostics. I get the diagnostics. I get I got an issue. You know what I need now? I don't need diagnostics. I need a doctor. I need a doctor that can cure me. Enter the new. Who's the new? Jesus. The law is there to diagnose you. Jesus is here to save you. 
oh, wait a second, so that means they're not at warring with one another. No, they don't war with one another. They, all, they both have their purpose. But when the new comes, hey, the old has done its purpose. Now it's time for the new. It's time for Jesus. Here's the problem. Just like we talked about the fasting, and all of a sudden I'm fasting 52 times a year, 104 times a year. In our modern day and age, you get people, they fall into legalism. What is legalism? I believe that by my good works, I can be made right with God. Man, that's an old song that's been played many times. It didn't work then. It doesn't work now. And so here's another image from the Old Testament. Let me just have you consider this. Especially if you're an animal lover, you probably have a hard time when you hear about all the sacrifices that were that had to happen in the Bible, right? That God's calling for here. Some sacrifices like we read were annual sacrifices, okay? Some sacrifices were weekly sacrifices, but check this out. Some sacrifices were daily sacrifices. Animals of some type were being killed daily. And if you're an animal lover, it's like, why would a loving God do that? That's a good question. It's a valid question, and it's a question that has an answer. Here's why. Because your sin requires a cost. It requires a life. In fact, if we go to the Old Testament and actually go to the source material, the way that it would be done is if you brought an animal to be sacrificed, and especially something like a sheep or something like that, or a goat, you would end up putting your hand upon the animal that is alive. That no doubt was part of your family because you brought it, right? And so you brought it in and now you're bringing this animal that if you've ever had a pet, there's affection there, right? Well, it comes... It's there at the priest. It's at the horn of the altars. You put your hand on there as its throat is slit. And you, set, you feel and sense there is life and now there is no more life. And here's the thing. You realize that the... Why would that happen? Why does that have to happen? Because sin always requires payment. What's the payment for sin? Something light? I mean, I should probably pull out a wallet and pay for it. It requires death. And requires that blood. And so then as, the, as your hand would be on the animal, you would realize this. And this was the point of the sacrifice. The reason the sacrifice was there is you would realize this animal died. Why did it die? Because of me. We live in a society that's like, oh no, who's to say what right or wrong is? Who's to say? I mean, it's really whatever you want it to be. Make up your own, um, make up your own rules. Uh, that's going to be a real issue when you meet face to face with the king. Because your made-up rules on your short life here on earth will not stand the time and that meeting with Jesus. So, that's why it's so important. You love people. Yes, we love people so much that we're going to tell them the truth. So much. I think it's unloving to lie to a person. So we tell them the truth of what the Bible actually says. So we go back to the, the sacrifices again. Jim, did you make up all that stuff about the sacrifices and what its purpose was? No, and I actually want to give you a verse because I want to give you the source. I don't, you know, I could be lying to you. So let's go to the source. Hebrews 10, verse 3 and 4. Hebrews 10, 3 and 4 says this. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins of every, of sins every year. Those are for those annual sacrifices. Look at this. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. See, if it was possible, then you would just do it once and it would be done with. But because that's not sufficient, it has to be done continually. It would be great if there was some sacrifice that could be made for my sins that could be done once and for all. If there was only like a perfect animal, a perfect um, lamb that could be given. Remember what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
For the person that rejects Jesus, they take all their sins upon themselves and deal with an eternity separated from God. Why? Because they said, I'm good enough. They lie to themselves and they're going to, well, they're not going to lie to God. The truth will come out. Every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. So does that make us go, there we go. People are going to get what they deserve. No, that breaks your heart. And it should drive us to go, I need to be able to share with people in a way they can understand the truth of what the consequence of sin is. We live in a morally pervasive world that has normalized sin. So then those that go, well, I don't want to do that because God makes it really clear that that's not what one of his kids should do. Ah, don't worry about it. Everybody's doing it. Remember that in Genesis, there was a world of people that were doing what God had not told them to do and everyone except eight perished in a flood. There is consequence to sin. I want to say this too. Please listen carefully. Sin is still sin even if somebody you love is doing it. People don't get a pass on it. Oh, Jesus, it's okay. That, that's my, that's my, uh, my son. I mean, I know what they're doing is wrong, but it's okay. I mean, you know, I'll just pray extra for him. You know what you're doing? It's like you're fasting a bunch of times a week so that you can kind of pay God off with your good works. Doesn't work. That's, that's you being legalistic and trying to make it all work out. God's not going to fall for that. So, hey, is this a, a light message? It's not a light message. And Jesus jumped right into this when they asked, how come your followers aren't fasting? So after you hear this message, you may say a couple things. Jim, well, okay, I'm not uh, as young as you are. I'm a little further on, a little more set in my ways and you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Okay, a couple things. Stop insulting yourself. You're not a dog. Okay, and second, the gospel of grace is no trick. It's the truth. It's the truth. And Jesus came to not just speak it, but he lived it and he died proclaiming it. Okay, well, Jim, I've been raised in a rigid, inflexible, rule-following, works-based way. I can't change myself. You know what? You're right. You can't change yourself. But I know somebody who can change you. God, your creator, has been instructing you to humble yourself before him. Humble yourself? What does that look like? It looks like a guy in the back of a prison cell going, excuse me? Yes, king, I'm guilty. I'm totally guilty. Do you want me as a substitute? Yes, you're free. Thank you. See, and what didn't happen with, with uh, Ferdinand and that prisoner is Ferdinand didn't swap places with him. You know what Jesus did? King Jesus did? He swapped places with you. He went one even beyond that. You know, um, all of this that's happening here, what we're seeing, the old and the new, the old is the law, the new is grace and truth. I want to show you another verse here. John 1, 17. John 1, verse 17. For the law was given through Moses... The law of God was given through the man Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. There's definitely a a distinction between those two men and what came through them. And as I was doing some studying, this is really interesting. The very first miracle that Jesus did was at a wedding in Canaan. He turned water into wine, okay? And wine, we see it in the Bible, it's, it's a symbol of joy. Okay, so Jesus comes to a wedding and what does he do? He brings joy because that's what grace and truth does. So then I was kind of looking, I'm going, wait a second, what was the first miracle that Moses did? You know what the first miracle Moses did? Moses turned water into blood in Egypt and that was a sign of judgment. And if Moses represents the law, you know what the law brings? For the law was given through Moses, judgment. It judges you. 
It shows you that you have a terminal issue, condition, sin. When Jesus comes, he comes bringing joy through grace and truth. And there's a distinction between the two. One comes, it served its purpose, but now the new is here and we follow Jesus. You know, this whole imagery of the wedding feast too, and like the bridegroom, the guests and that, I think it's wonderful. When we were at uh, Jim and Sandy's uh, 50th um, uh, vow renewal just two days ago, I'm going to share something from it that it was great because Jim wrote an engagement letter. Jim was asking Sue if, if she would accept. And it's a wonderful letter and it was on display there and you're able to read it and actually see like, it was just amazing. And you were 24, 23, 24 at that time, right? 22. Wow. So 22 year old writing those words out. And then when we were there Friday, which was 50 years to the day that they were married, Jim said, well, can I have the microphone at a certain part in the ceremony? And I know, Sue, you're shaking your head just like, because Sue didn't know what was going to happen. And it was great because then what Jim said was, uh, I didn't get a chance to do this when I first proposed to you by letter, so I'm going to do this now. And so he got down on one knee for the first, first time, for the first time, 50 years to the day after they were married. She said yes again. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and there wasn't a dry eye in the room. You know what weddings do and those things? It brings joy. Jesus is here to bring joy because that's what the new brings in. The gospel of grace brings joy into a person's life. If you've been around Christians long enough, sometimes you run across some and they're just so like... It's like, what is wrong with you? Like, I don't know, just having a bad day. Okay, yes, that happens. But don't you have a joy? Because joy is not an emotion like happiness. Happiness comes and goes. Joy for the Christian, it's that bedrock. It doesn't go. It carries you and actually buoys you through the hard times in life. Why would I have joy? Because I was set to spend eternity separated from God. But the king came to the prison gates and he offered to exchange my place. I have joy. I don't care how how bad my day is or what my health happens or if I find out I have cancer or somebody in my family passes away. The king of all kings swapped places with me so that I could spend eternity with him and be free from all of the pain and suffering of this world. That should carry us even through the hardest and darkest days of this life. That's what joy is. Charles Spurgeon said this. Here's a quote from Charles Spurgeon. He said, When you speak of heaven, let your face light up. Let it be irradiated by a heavenly gleam. Let your eyes shine with reflected glory. That's awesome. You definitely should. But check this out. When you speak of hell, your ordinary ordinary expression will do. (laughs) The problem is... Some Christians, when they're talking about the things of God or are around the things of God, they have their ordinary expression. Mm, eh. Eh. Hungry. Lunch. It'll be fine. You'll eat. It'll be great. I'm I'm only going to go a few more minutes. It'll be fine. But don't sacrifice eternal truth for temporary gain. And if you're a child of God, I I encourage you because I had to do this for myself. Are you a person that's known for joy? Or are you known for, hmm, well, are you so pragmatic? Well, it is what it is. Wow. Okay, then. That's really an uplifting statement. Do you ever have those moments where where the joy spills out from you and you just, 
That's how it should be, Christian. You probably know this verse from Nehemiah 8. The joy of the Lord is my strength. When Jesus lives in a person, that joy should be so obvious and evident. I'm not saying, and please understand, joy is not this emotional thing primarily. What do I mean? Some people, they try to fake it or they read this and they go, oh, I need to, hi, hi, how are you doing? Good to see you. Yeah, I'm falling apart, but I, I'm good. How are you? I'm good. <laughs> right? It's just like weird. And they come across as weird and you're just like, you are not a real person. I'm so sorry, but there's no one that's quite like that all the time. Everybody has challenges. So just be real. But the reality is for a Christian, there's this bedrock that stays still and doesn't ever leave you. And it's the joy of the Lord. And it strengthens you even in your hardest days. When I was a kid, when I was a kid, when I was a kid, um, there was a song. And this song came to my mind when I was, when I was studying through this message here. And, and you may know this song. It's called The Joy of the Lord is My Strength. And if you know it, sing it along with me because I think it fits. The joy of the Lord is... There you know it. The joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. You know, really hard lyrics too. It's just like... But did you know there's some verses to it? If you know these, sing along too. He heals the brokenhearted and they cry no more. He heals the brokenhearted and they cry no more. He heals the brokenhearted and they cry no more. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Maybe this next verse is for you. He gives us living water and we thirst no more. He gives us living water and we thirst no more. He gives us living water and we thirst no more. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Last one. Maybe this is what you need. If you want joy, you must pray for it. If you want joy, you must pray for it. If you want joy, you must pray for it. The joy of the Lord is my strength. If you need that joy, you need to pray for it. Because you can't do it yourself. It doesn't come from you. You're not the source. It it doesn't get created from you. It comes from God alone. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Papa, as we come before you at the close of this message, you have examined us. You already knew where we stood with you. You knew when we woke up this morning and when we walked in this room. It's not hidden from you. We just may have forgotten We may have been so distracted by the shiny things of this world that we forgot to check our spiritual condition with You. Father, examine us. See if there be any wicked way within us. Cleanse us. Purify us. If if we've forgotten what the joy of the Lord is and we thought it's all about happiness, and when we're not happy, then we think we've lost our relationship with You. Lord, remind us of the joy. I want to uh, tell you this, if we have our heads bowed and eyes closed, if you need the joy of the Lord in your life. If you're a believer, but you've forgotten what the joy of the Lord is, I'm not going to embarrass you at all, I'm just going to pray for you. If you're, if you're a believer, you're a Christian, and you just forgot what the joy of the Lord is, and you just need the Lord to remind you of it again, would you just raise your hand? I just want to pray for you. I see you. I, I see many hands. You may put your hands down. Father, for these dear brothers and sisters, 
I just pray for them, Lord, that you would renew the joy. I thank you, God, that your reservoir is unlimited of joy. You're not going to run out. (laughs) Lord, pour it out upon us richly. As we remember how good you've been to us in our life, time and time and time and time and time again, that we would realize you've never left us, never forsaken us. You've always been there. Restore the joy of our salvation and let it be the strength of our life. If you're a person here this morning, we do have our heads bowed and our eyes closed and you aren't a Christian. You, you realize as, as this message has been going on, you're one of those people behind the bars that keeps telling the King, Jesus, that you're a pretty good person. And you realize that that's not going to ever lead to you being free from the reality of sin. And you realize that in this moment you need a person to exchange your spot. Jesus is willing. He's already paid the price. He's not going to have to pay it again. He's already done it once and for all. He was the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God, given for you. Do you receive Him as your substitute? Do you receive Him as your perfect sacrifice, the one that takes your place? If you do, He would have you today. But you have to humble yourself and choose Him. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, if that's where you're at today, would you raise your hand just so that I might pray for you? Is there anyone here this morning that would like to accept Jesus? I see your hand. Is there anyone else? Is there anyone else in here? For our dear sister here who raised her hand, just pray this prayer in your heart to the Lord. He loves you. He cares for you. He knows you. Jesus, I need you. I can't fix me. I can't solve my sin problem. I need your forgiveness. I ask for your forgiveness. Jesus, I ask that you would take my place, that you would take my sin, that I would be free. Jesus, help me to walk in your ways and help me to be a good example of what it is to follow you to a world that doesn't know. I love you, Jesus. Thank you for saving me. Father, we pray for our dear sister who raised her hand. And if there was anybody else here that did as well, we pray you bless them, that this would be a day that they remember for the rest of their life because this day, their eternal destination changed forever. Lord, we pray from the time now until she sees you face to face, that Holy Spirit, you would fill her with your joy and give her power to overcome any challenge that comes her way. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you for the work you've done today. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. 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 God bless you.